Well, if you take your Bible, Romans 15, that's where we're going to be, book of Romans, big number 15, we made it through 14. I feel like every time we get to a new chapter, it's like a milestone in this journey of Romans, right? So 15, find that. Now, this past week, I had uh, the opportunity to marry my brother, and I performed his wedding ceremony this week. So that meant that all of us brothers were together. If you don't know, I'm one of five boys. And uh, when, our, my, when our brothers get together, well, first of all, it's sheer chaos. But besides that, there are some of us who are the ones who have to take care of the other brothers. Like, make sure they do the basic things that I thought when you were in your 30s and 40s you knew how to do. But uh, yeah, some of us have to do that. And then there's others of us who are the ones being taken care of. And I don't want you to speak out loud, but which do you think I am? I hope you didn't say being taken care of. I mean, if that, that's what you think of me, fine. I, I don't have a problem with that. But I am one of the brothers who has to take care of everyone else. As the oldest brother and as apparently one of the only responsible ones, I have to help them with things. Things basic, you know, like how to put on a bow tie. And I'm not even talking like the fold bow tie because I got mad respect for people that can do that. Okay, this, I'm talking about just like a clip one, like a clips in the back. You got to like shorten it by finding the little slits there. I mean, they just couldn't do it. I had to help them. Or what a wedding processional is. My brother's like, I don't know what that is. I'm like, have you been to a wedding? He's like, well, that's when the bride walks down by herself. Or like, no, the dad walks down with the bride. Yeah. So, you know, you just got to help them out, help them in life. And... <laughs> This morning, I want us to see that all of us, every one of us in here are our brother's keeper. We are our brother and sister's keeper. And you probably guess I'm not talking about biological family anymore. I'm talking about this family, the church family. We are responsible for one another. That's what we're going to see this morning. And this attitude of I am my brother's keeper, here it is shown in Romans 15. And uh, first, if you're taking notes, this is the attitude. The attitude is... Your weakness is my weakness. The weakness that you have is my weakness. And so let's look at the first verse, Romans 15, 1. Notice what the text says. We're going to take it just the first three verses, one verse at a time. Romans 15, 1 says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Your weakness is my weakness. Now, the Amplified Bible, which sometimes I like to read, it kind of gives you these little par- uh, um, brackets that like, helps you know what they're talking about. Here's what verse one is in Amplified. We who are strong in our convictions and, ro- uh, and robust faith ought to bear with the failings and the frailties and the tender scruples of the weak. We ought to help carry the doubts and qualms of others and not to please ourselves. So first question here that we should consider is who are the strong and who are the weak? What is Paul talking about when he says the strong ought to bear with the weak? Now, I think he's nodding back to chapter 14. If you remember, if you were with us in in chapter 14, in chapter 14, we have some believers who have a more developed, more mature conscience. And over time, they've walked with the Lord and, and they have the ability to discern between what is godly and what is worldly. So usually that comes with time of walking with the Lord, but not always. And then you have other believers who are just more sensitive in their conscience. They, they uh, don't feel like they have quite as much freedom as other believers in some areas. And that's what chapter 14 was talking about. I do think Paul is nodding to that. 
But I do believe in verses 1 through 3, we are talking about more than just food and drink and wine and Sabbath, which is what he refers to in chapter 14. It seems like Paul is kind of zooming out just a little bit and saying, in general, there are some Christians who are stronger, and then there are some believers, Christians, who are weaker. This could be everything from spiritual maturity also to standing in the faith community. There are some just stronger believers. There are some that are seemingly weaker. They don't have much influence. They don't have much standing. They don't have much authority in the church. They're the kind of people in the church that no one really notices if they come or not. There are different types of Christians. One thing is for sure, based on Romans, but based on other scriptures, neither is better than the other. Just because you have a position in the church or an official title or you give a certain amount or, you, or, or you, people would just say, yeah, they're a strong believer, does not make you better in God's eyes than the weaker believer. But what we're going to see today is that there's some responsibility that comes with that. In God's sight, all of his children he loves. All are indispensable to the body of Christ. No one is dispensable, and so there must be a close-knit unity among us. We can't just not care if certain people fall off the radar. We can't just not care if certain people leave our midst. So I want to dig in a little bit here, and I want to uh, look at this weakness that Paul refers to. When he says weak, you see it in verse 1, right? When he says weak, this word in the New Testament often is sick, blind, lame, or invalid, and so all throughout the Gospels, you have this, these weak people that Jesus interacts with. I think there's an idea of powerlessness. There's those that seem to have more power than there's those that are powerless spiritually, maybe in the faith community. I'm going to get to that in a little bit, okay, the idea of power and powerlessness. But if you were to read verse 1 literally, just read the original language, this, this is what it, it would say. It would say, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with, notice, the weakness of the weak. And Paul kind of uses, he kind of repeats it twice. The weakness of the weak. And so he really wants us to understand that there are some who are weak among us. I think the ESV translates this the most clearly in that it says this, an obligation. There, there is an idea that, that we owe it to the weak. We owe the weak. Paul's telling us this is not a, a, an optional thing. We owe it to those who are weak in our midst to care for them, to care about them. And so he repeats this idea of weakness of the weak. The attitude that God wants us to have, as I said first, is your weakness is my weakness. Your struggle is my struggle. We are our brother's keeper. I want you to notice how we who are stronger are to, are to help the weak. What does it say? We are to bear with. And some of you might read that and go, okay, well, I'll put up with those weak people. That's not really what he's saying. He's not saying just bear with them. That we read it in English and we think, okay, I can do that. I can put up with those weak, weird Christians that I know in my church. <laughs> That's not what he's saying. He's actually saying the weak need you to bear under the weight of what they're going through. So here's the weak person who's struggling, right? And they're just struggling for whatever reason. They're just a weaker believer or going through a situation in life where they're weaker. They're bearing under the weight and you come over and you help them prop up the weight. You help bear this, the, the weight of what they're feeling. It's very much a step into their shoes, step alongside of them. Like we saw last week, just like the Holy Spirit, that parakaleo, that come alongside of, that's what we're talking about. Pretty much the exact meaning in Galatians chapter 6. Paul writes in Galatians 6 these words, and he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you, who are spiritual, 
should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Notice this. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And Paul's going to talk in, in Romans just a little bit about Christ, right? For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So again, the idea is you have some excess strength and you see that brother or sister struggling and you say, you know what, I can bear that with you. I can step into that with you. And we owe it to them because their weakness is our weakness. If I see my daughter struggling to carry something, in my mind I went to like going to the beach. You ever been a family that had to go to the beach? You had to carry a ton of stuff. You've got little, little ones, good luck. Okay. I remember my dad inventing carts and different, nowadays they have all kinds of stuff, but my dad would invent them. They never worked like they were supposed to, okay? But here's my dad carrying like all the chairs and all the sand toys and all the stuff. And then us brothers are trying to, I mean, I don't even know why we brought so much stuff down, but we did, okay? So if I see my daughter struggling to carry things, what do I do as a dad? I do everything I can to go help them because I'm a little stronger than them. And so I say, hey, give that to me, sweetie. And they go, dad, are you sure you're okay? You got like 10 things on you. It's like, yeah, I'm good. I got this. Because I have some strength and I can use that strength to help somebody who's in need. It's not okay if my daughter is like falling down. I'm just like, yeah, going to the beach. This is awesome. That's not okay with me. And it shouldn't be okay with us if a brother or sister is falling down. I think you can make the case that a church's health and a church's integrity is directly tied to how they treat the weaker among them. How they treat the ones who no one really gives much attention to. The ones who are not the movers and shakers of the church. They're usually not the ones with a lot of prestige or influence, but they matter. Their weakness is our weakness. Now, in order to bear the weight of the weakness of those around us, we're going to have to fulfill the um, second half of verse 1 here that says, don't please yourselves, right? Not to please yourselves. Not please ourselves. Which means I can't be consumed with my own advancement, making sure that I am good. I must consider the advancements of those around me. You know, it, it doesn't matter if I'm winning the spiritual marathon, if my brother or sister fell in mile four, if I have no concern for their plight or what they're going through, and I'm just, I'm booking it, you know, I'm, I'm a faithful Christian, I'm a mature Christian, look at me, I'm winning the race. To keep on running mile after mile to know that one of my brothers or sisters is back there on the ground, hey, four miles was a lot for them. <laughs> four miles is a lot for a lot of us if we're running, okay? But they're, they're struggling, and for me to keep running mile after mile, my hypocrisy just builds up, right? I'm this spiritual person, but I don't care about them. Here's the thing. In God's economy, the way God measures things, it's not the strong, it's not the swift that win the race. Right? It's not the ones who everyone goes, yeah, look at them. They're so spiritual. It's the ones who model Jesus Christ. It's the ones who evidence in their life the mercy and the grace of Jesus who are becoming Jesus-like. That's how, that's how God measures things in the kingdom of God, right? It's not the ones that everyone goes, oh, look at them. They're so amazing. It's the ones who are like Jesus, the ones who help those that are in need. I ask you, does not God help us with our weakness? Doesn't God take the time to help us 
with our weakness. I could go to so, so many verses, but here's just one from Romans 8. Just a few chapters earlier in, in, in our book here of Romans. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our what? In our weakness. Same word as in our text this morning. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. God's not in heaven going, he better act, get his act together, right? Come on, run faster, be stronger. No, the Spirit condescends. The Spirit helps me in my weakness when I don't even know what to pray. And he intercedes and he prays on my behalf. Leon Morris says this about the obligation that we have to bear with the weak, the weakness of our brothers and sisters. He says, this is very important in the Christian church. For the church is a very inclusive body made up of people old and young, rich and poor, intellectually able and handicapped of every race and class. And even in this room right here, we have a diversity of people, different backgrounds, different maybe human abilities, different socioeconomic situations. And here we're, we're being called to not just care about myself, but to look around and say, how is that other person? So your weakness is my weakness. And closely related to that is the second point here this morning. And that is that my strength is your strength. Not only is your weakness my weakness, but my strength is for you to build you up, to make you even stronger. So we recognize, okay, I, okay I'm my brother's keeper. The Bible clearly says that here. I do need to care. Not only do I want to bear under the weight of your weakness, and experience some of your weakness, I want to give you my strength so that you become stronger. So you're built up. And this word build in our, in our uh, verse two here, you know, uh, verse two says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build, that word build him up. That's a word that's used about houses. And it is the root of the word house in, in the scriptures. And so that's where we get the idea of edifice or edify somebody to build them up. So I'm going to ask you to think about it in like a helping your brother or sister with a home renov renovation project. Any of you have ever had to ask somebody for help with a home project? Be honest, admit it, okay? How many of you, you are the ones that everyone asks? They're probably humble enough they're not going to admit it. I'm looking at a couple already in this room that have helped me with stuff. Sometimes I just need a little bit of like advice. You know, I think I got it, but I'm like, hey, is this okay? Other times I am so clueless. I don't even know where to begin. I'm like... Uh, what do I do? In fact, there was um, this time not long ago where I had some ceramic tiles fall off of, the, it's like a baseboard. Okay, they didn't really fall off. My dog chewed them off, right? And I just looked at it. It was all broken underneath and like it wasn't really drywall, but I didn't know what it was. I'm like, ah, I don't know what to do with this. So I just like let it sat, sit for a year and a half. Um, don't judge me, okay? Finally, I asked somebody, I'm like, um, what do I do with this? He's like, oh, you just go to Home Depot, get this, slap it on, whatever. I'm like, okay, I did it, and it worked. And I was like, that wasn't that hard. <laughs> I just needed a little bit of help, a little bit of advice. So think about this. You're helping somebody build, except in the scenario that Paul is talking about, it's not helping them with a house project. They themselves are the renovation project. Your friend, your brother or sister in Christ, they're the renovation project. They're the ones that God is doing something in and building up and, and making them grow in their faith. And so you're called to not just come help them with their house, but you're called to come help them themselves grow, themselves be built up. 
Scripture says this, right? He says, you, you know, we're talking about us as believers. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Or in another passage, we're called living stones, right? Built into this church. Each one of us in this room are a living stone. If you're in Christ, you're part of that building. And so what, what Paul is saying is he's saying you are responsible to help build up your brother, help build up your sister in Christ. The real question I have from this text here is, are you and I willing to help our brothers and sisters become something beautiful? Are you willing to see that, that fellow Christian become a cathedral? You're like, well, I'm not even a cathedral. I don't know if I want to help them become a cathedral. <laughs> are we okay that they're a fixer-upper that's not really being fixed? Are we okay if that believer is just barely getting by? Well, they're, they're getting to heaven. It's fine. They'll be okay. Or do we want to see them become something even more beautiful, something that, hey, maybe even more beautiful than we ourselves, but we, we care about them. We care about their success. We care about them being built up in Christ. So this attitude is my strength is your strength, right? My strength is for your strengthening. It's for you to be built up. Leon Morris, again, he says this, this does not mean that we are never to do anything that we want to do, but that we are never to do what pleases us, regardless of its effect on others. It really comes down to awareness and sensitivity of the spiritual state of others. And I know, like, sometimes it's all you can do just to stay close to God yourself and just to, you don't have to have it all figured out before you look to help the other person. I dare say that you are stronger in your faith than somebody else in the church. Somebody might have just became a believer last week, okay? You can still strengthen somebody else. And the question is, am I going to, like, take the blinders off and look around and say, who else here amongst us needs some help? Or are you, like I talked about last week, just me and Jesus, you know? Just me and Jesus walking through the meadow together. I love Jesus. He loves me. And I'm going to heaven. Or are you saying, no, there are people on my right and there are people on my left. And we're walking through this together. You know, when I think about God and, and how he looks at us, when I get to the end of my life, it's not going to be so much like, uh, did any of you guys grow up and go to Sunday school and you had attendance charts with stickers? Anyone like that? I, I, had, I had those. And man, did I want my attendance chart to be filled up with those cool little stickers. And you know what? I did pretty well because my parents were, they were pretty strict about it, okay? Uh, but I don't think we're going to get to heaven and God's going to pull out the chart and be like, here are your stickers, put them on the chart, you know? Or, you know, you memorized X amount of scripture or you, we should memorize scripture. And man, we want you to be here. As you know, pastors, we, we want that. <laughs> but that's not, we're not going to get to heaven. It's not going to be this grading thing like that. It's going to be, are you becoming like Jesus? Are you walking in the ways of Jesus? Are you, are you looking around and doing what Jesus would do? And sometimes we just get off because we're thinking about all the stuff I got to do instead of how should I be? Who should I be? Am I loving my brother and my sister like I love myself? Right? Second greatest commandment. Am I loving God with my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength? I want to mention uh, talking about pleasing others, right? Because if you look at the, the scripture, it says we're to please others. And I, I'm, if you're like me, you're like, well, what does that mean to please others? And I want to talk about two cliffs that we could fall off into, ways in which we might not get this right as far as pleasing others. Because clearly from the text, I'm to please you as my brothers and sisters. I'm not to please myself. So what does that mean? And how do I not get this wrong? The first cliff we have to watch out for is the cliff of enablement. 
the cliff of enablement. You can actually spend your life trying to please somebody and enable them and, and, and not really help them, but actually hurt them. So it doesn't mean do, do whatever they want. Just please that person, even if it's to their detriment. That's not what it means. And I know that because I look at the text and verse 2 gives us a clear guardrail here. It says, whatever is for his good to build him up. Whatever's for his or her good to build them up. That's the, the guardrail that keeps us from like falling off into the cliff of enabling somebody in their sin and their addiction and, and whatever it is. Because sometimes we got to do the hard thing and it doesn't seem to please that person. Sometimes it's a, a, a parent thing or a spouse thing where we, we just want to please them, but we end up enabling them and not actually helping them grow in their faith. No, it's, it's actually the idea of loving them enough to do what is for their good, Paul says. And so sometimes what's for their good, we talked about this last week, is holy agitation. Holy agitation, not just agitation, right? But going to that person saying, hey, are you okay? Is your marriage okay? Things seem like they're not going okay. Or you've been really angry lately. Are you okay? And once they get done being mad at you for calling out their sin, uh, maybe through that process of refining that God will do in them, they will in become more like Jesus, which is the ultimate pleasure, right? That's the ultimate good, being like Jesus, not just liking what you tell me. So we want to make sure that we're doing this right. We're not just enabling people. Paul's not saying, just be a people pleaser. Just enable people. And that, that's kind of my second cliff I want to just mention. Beware of people pleasing, right? I don't know if this is a problem for you, but I can tell you that for me, I tend to struggle with people pleasing. And this is a cliff you could fall off on. You could say, well, Paul says, God says, don't please yourself, please other people. So I'm just going to make my, goal, my mission of my life to please everyone. Well, it's going to kill you, okay? <laughs> it's really hard when you just try to make sure everyone's happy. I'd probably consider myself a recovering people pleaser. I don't know if that's you. Trying to work on it, trying to say, you know what? I'm to please God first and foremost, then please other people. Because here's what happens with people pleasing. We, we fear man more than we fear God. We somehow derive our worth from how you view me. And if you don't view me the right way and you're not pleased with me, then, man, I guess my worth is not much. And that's a struggle for many of us. I would say probably most of us. Paul's not saying be a people pleaser. I think there's a way to please others without being a people pleaser. You could please people without being a people pleaser. Does that make sense? we got to watch out that we don't take Paul's words and somehow twist them in enablement or people-pleasing. Again, consider that guardrail. What does it say? For his or her good. So you please people, why? For their good. Now, when I'm people-pleasing and I'm just doing something for you so that you like me, whose good am I ultimately concerned with? I'm actually more concerned about myself. I want to feel worthwhile. I want to feel good because you like me. And so really, it's not for their good as much as it's for my good. So those guardrails kind of keep us from going off the cliffs there. Okay, so our attitude must be your weakness is my weakness. My strength is for you and your strengthening. In other words, I could say it this way. We absorb the weakness of others and then we gift them with our strength so that they're built up. We take that weakness into ourselves. And there's something very God-like about that, isn't there? Something very like God when we're going to absorb and take in weakness and then distribute strength. And that's my last point here this morning. And that's if I absorb weakness, 
I showed Jesus. If I or if you absorb another believer's weakness, you showcase, you show Jesus. Romans 15, 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So in the midst of Paul instructing us how to love our brothers and sisters well, he makes a beeline to the cross. And, and he points to Jesus and he says, you know what? Jesus didn't please himself. Jesus lived to please others. This is true of, of Jesus' entire life, right? You could start with his incarnation, coming to earth, being made flesh, like for him to put aside his pleasure, his power, his prestige, his position, all that stuff. He put it aside temporarily. He became human and he came here. Why? To please his father and to love us. But then through his life, think about the way that he lived. He always lived out of reverence and respect and for the Father's pleasure. That's why he lived. And for our good. I think about all of the weak people that Jesus interacted with. Remember that in the Gospels, the word weak is often blind, lame, invalid, right? So here we have Jesus touching, coming into contact with these outcasts, these people that are very weak. And we have him loving them and doing things for their good. Here's, here's a, one of the moments that Jesus cast out a demon and he healed the sick. And then Matthew 8, 17 says this right after this happened. So he's just cast demons out. He's just healed the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now this is a crazy verse. I, we don't have time to really spend a, spend a lot here, but it's interesting to me that I mean, when I think about that uh, verse from Isaiah, clearly that references the cross as well, right? When he bore, Isaiah 53 is really what's being referenced here. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. But here, after he heals somebody, a, a weak person, a physically weak person, it says this fulfills what was said in Isaiah, which is just crazy to me. But if you look at that word illnesses, that word illnesses is the same word in the Greek. Matthew's writing this as our, from our text of weak. He took our weakness, and he bore our diseases. I think of the woman who touched the hem of Jesus' garment. You remember her? She said, if I can just get close enough to just touch the bottom of his robe, just barely touch the fringe, I know there's enough power right there in the, in the fringes of Jesus that I will be healed. She had this faith. And sure enough, she, she gets there and she touches the hem of his garment. Now, Matthew doesn't say these words, but Mark says that Jesus felt his what go out of him? His power go out of him. Now, I don't think it's like the video games where, you know, you're, you're, you're giving power and you're depleting. And Jesus would have been like, oh, I need to, like, power up. That, that's not how Jesus operated. Jesus had infinite amounts of power and ability. But it is true that his power was distributed to this woman. He absorbed her weakness and he gave her power. In other words, Jesus said, her weakness is my weakness. My strength is her strength. Here are a couple additional scriptures that helps us understand, hey, how did Jesus take our weakness upon himself? Same word as in our text, okay? Romans 5, 6, just a little bit earlier in the book of Romans. For while we were still weak, that's the word from 
from our text. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Again, God doesn't stand in heaven, sit on his throne in heaven, and just look at these weak, sinful people and say, good luck. No, he, while we were weak, he sent his son, and Jesus died for us in our weakness. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Oh, man, I have Jesus Christ, who's my high priest, who sympathizes with my weakness. Praise the Lord for that, right? And then he goes before the Father on my behalf. Because my weakness is his weakness and his strength is my strength. Jesus' whole life is a picture of selflessness. But I I do believe Paul is specifically here talking about the cross. And I say that because of the, the scripture that he quotes, right? He is talking about Jesus on the cross, how Jesus endured the opposite of, of, of pleasure, right? He endured pain unimaginable. And it even starts in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is there and he's, he's, he's kind of processing all of this. Remember, he's human and God. And he says what? He says, your will be done, not mine. In other words, I'm going to not please myself. I'm going to please the Father and I'm going to love the world. And then we have him hanging on the cross, bearing reproach, the second part of our verse here, bearing reproach for, for the world, in front of the whole world, being reproached. Now, here in the second part of verse 3, Paul quotes Scripture. And anytime you see in the New Testament, as it is written, there's a reference to Scripture that came before, right? And this is in connection with Jesus, and he says, Jesus didn't please himself as it is written. Now, I don't know about you, but I would expect uh, Paul to reference from the gospel, something that Jesus did, something that Jesus said or whatever, but that's not what he does. He goes back to the book of Psalms, and he quotes from the book of Psalms David's words as David stands as representative for the people. And David says, you know, I'm bearing reproach, your reproach of your people for myself. And I think that's interesting because that roots, that roots our quest for selflessness, not just back to Christ, but like even further back to David. In other words, this is the ancient calling of the followers of God to choose the way of selflessness, to think about others. David's thinking about the community of faith. And and Jesus, of course, is thinking about other people, not himself. And we're called to do the exact same thing. Now, you might say, okay, well, what is 14 and the first couple of verses of 15? How do they connect this strength and weakness and all this stuff? I think what we see here is that Jesus' attitude in verse 3, Jesus' attitude is so different from the Christian who says, you know what, I'm free to do what I want to do. I'm going to enjoy my liberties, and I don't really care what other people think of it, right? Like those other brothers and sisters, if they don't think that I should be doing that, I don't care because I'm free, you know, free in Christ. And that is so different from Jesus' mentality because Jesus had all of the strength, and he had all of the power, and he had all the wisdom, and he had everything, and yet He says, I'll give that up. And Paul's saying, if you want to know how to do chapter 14, look at the first couple verses of chapter 15. Look at Jesus and consider how Jesus, the strongest, the greatest, how he operates. Now, I mentioned earlier that I think this is something to do with power and powerlessness. I mean, the words themselves, weak and strong, have an idea of those that have power and those that don't have power. But... uh, 
I, I want you to hear these words from Chrysostom. He's a church father from the early couple centuries. Um, and he said this, he had power, Jesus, he had power not to have been reproached, power not to have suffered what he did, had he been minded to look to his own things. That's the church fathers. I, I want to go from the church fathers to Hollywood, which admittedly is a really tough transition, okay? But, but uh, Chrysostom says, hey, Jesus had the power. Had he, not des- had he desired to seek his own benefit, he didn't have to do what he did, right? Here's a, a more recent uh, example. I, one of my favorite animated movies is uh, Wreck-It Ralph. And uh, plot spoiler, if you haven't seen it, close your ears. Pretty sure if you haven't seen it by now, you're probably not going to watch it, okay? So Wreck-It Ralph, at the end, you have Ralph. He's the strong guy, you know what I mean? He's the one who has the power. He's the one who has the ability to get out of that, like, video game. And as I'm talking about this, if you've never seen it, you're like, what is he talking about? Just don't worry about it, okay? He can leave. He can save himself, but instead he stays. And he helps Penelope, who is the outcast, who, uh, you know, she's the glitch, so she's kind of like the, kind of a handicapped in some ways, right? And he stays and he sacrifices himself in a very surprising emotional end to a movie that otherwise was mostly funny and that kind of stuff. And you're like, whoa, hey. (laughs) But I love that image of here's the one with strength, here's the one with the ability, and yet he says, I'll sacrifice myself for this person that no one else really cares about, just him. I really believe the concept of helping the outcast is why Paul quotes David. And I want to explain this, and I'm going to need you to, to put your focus thinking capsule for just a moment. It's not difficult, but we have to follow the breadcrumbs of the, of the uh, cross-references. If your Bible has cross-references and you say, well, why does Paul quote David here? And again, he doesn't quote Jesus. He, doesn't, he did have access to the Gospels. We, we know that from other things he's quoted. But he doesn't do that. He goes all the way back to David. And we know that when, when we look at this verse, Psalm 69.9, and I have that uh, for, you to, for you to look at on the screen here. This is the verse that, that Paul is quoting. And when we look at this, we know that the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit was writing these words through David, had Jesus in mind. And here's what it says. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Now, to our knowledge, Jesus does not quote the second half of this verse, which Paul quotes. We don't have it recorded at a time when Jesus said these words. Maybe he did, and we just don't have them written. But we do know that Jesus quoted the first half of the verse. And I want you to think about when this was. For zeal for your house has consumed me. Anyone remember when that's from? What was Jesus doing? Yeah, he was, he was cleansing the temple with his whip. It's that one, like, Chuck Norris snapshot that people just don't know what to do with. They're like, I, Jesus, I don't know what to do. And it's like, well, why, why is Paul taking us back to David, which foreshadows Jesus, who quotes this text? I think the whole reason is why Jesus cleansed the temple in the first place. If you study this and you understand what was happening, these money changers had come into the court of the Gentiles and they set up shop. And they were making money on the backs of the Gentiles who came into the city to worship God or who lived in the city and came to worship God. You see, the Gentiles were not like the Jews. They didn't have the right or the privilege to come in further or closer. The court of the Gentiles was the area that they were given to worship in. That's as close as it gets for them. And you remember God's heart, God's heart for the nations to see all people know Jesus, right? So Jesus comes in and he sees being taken advantage of the outcasts. He sees those that are needy. He sees the weak 
being trampled on and exploited, and he's not okay with it. So much so that he very passionately whips them out of there because he's got a holy anger for this. And what does he say? He says, my house is to be a prayer for the nations, a, prayer, a house of prayer for the nations. He cares about the Gentiles too, not just the Jews. And so I, I put all this together and I say, okay, Paul is saying Jesus did not seek to please himself. No. You know what he did? He took the reproach of others upon himself. He cared for those that were outcasts. He stepped up for those people who needed him too. People who didn't have standing. People who didn't have the Jewish advantage. And so I start to see why. Why Paul's giving us this Old Testament quote. To take your power, which Jesus didn't have to do this. He didn't have to, okay? But he goes, he goes out of his way to help those that were in need. And isn't that so counterintuitive to the way that our world is, the way that America is, the way pretty much every country is? What is it about? It's about your success, your power, your standing, your making money, all of that. So to, to set some of your power and prestige aside and to go to bat for those that are weak, for those that are needy, that's so counterintuitive to our world. Just here's a real fresh example, okay? What if Trump or Biden said, you know what? You can have some of my electoral college votes. I can see you're struggling there. You can have Pennsylvania. It's okay. That's not going to happen, okay? Probably shouldn't. That's not, how you, like, that's not how you win a race and all that kind of stuff. But the point is, like, our world, when it comes to winning and success, like, it's built into the fabric of just life. And the idea of disadvantaging ourselves for the benefit of somebody else, it's so, like, mind-blowing. It's so counterintuitive. It means that we set aside some of our advantage and we help people and we look out for those around us. And remember, we're talking about those in the church from this passage. So as you interact with people in the church and you look around, you think, does that person need my help? Is that person in a spot where they need some spiritual encouragement? I don't want to just be focused and obsessed on my success, okay? In this world, if you're going you're gonna to do anything that's worth anything, you're probably going to have to like claw and scratch and probably step on a few weak people along the way. But in the kingdom of God, we as Christians are called to a very different paradigm than that, right? We're called to focus on my brother's success, my sister's success. I am my brother's keeper. So I ask you this morning, is that you? Are you your brother's keeper? Are you keeping an eye out for those around you in the race? That, that person who fell on mile four, are you, are, you, are you looking around and saying, how do I, are you just like booking it, you know? I'm doing good. I'm such a good Christian. I'm such a mature Christian. We got to look for others. If you're that kind of person, I'm going to ask you to slow down this morning and just kind of look around you and get to know other people in the body of Christ. And when you doubt that it's worth it, when you doubt that you should do that, think of Jesus Christ. Keep him in your mind's eye. As Paul says, imagine him on the cross and think about him laying aside his privilege and his uh, abilities for you. Jesus absorbing your weakness, right? Not just your weakness, your sin. Jesus taking in his own body on the tree, your weakness, and giving you the strength of righteousness, giving you the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's have this attitude as Jesus had, which is your weakness is my weakness. My strength is your strength. And if we do this we're going to showcase the love and the beauty of Jesus Christ. And doesn't our world need to see 
a countercultural picture today? Right? Don't they need to see somebody willing to set aside their own advancement for the advancement of others? I think they do. I think they do. I know they do. And that's what God's calling us to do from Romans 15, 1 through 3.